I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the BFI podcast, Bits and Bobs from Across British Film, brought to you by the British Film Institute. I'm Henry Barnes. Joining me this episode and every other episode is Anna Bogutskaya, the pod's new co-host. Anna, who are you and what on earth are you doing at the BFI? Hi, so I'm a programmer at BFI South Bank. I look after special events and seasons and previews of upcoming films and also curate our monthly Woman of the Movie Camera Strand. Sounds really cool. You must have lots of famous friends. Not really. Mainly Henry. Um, (laughs) And also, I just email everyone and be annoying constantly. Hassle people. Yes, that's my job. And you've just been on an amazing trip as part of your work, haven't you? Um, No, that was actually a holiday. Um, But because I don't like normal people holidays, I go to (laughs) film festivals to relax. So I've just come back from Il Cinema Ritrovato, which is our main and biggest archive film festival in the world, which takes place in Bologna every summer. It was my first time in Bologna as well. It's always been on my wish list of film festivals to visit. And it was an amazing experience. It's a beautiful, sunny, absolutely delicious town in Italy. And you get to watch old movies and beautiful new restorations of beloved films all day and then drink Aperol Spritz in the evening. What was your favourite thing you saw? I think my favourite thing was discovering the work of John M. Stahl. Mm -hmm. He's uh, an American film director and producer from the... Basically, he worked steadily from the 20s until about the 50s and I'd never heard of him which seems bizarre because he after looking him up um, during a festival he's got this amazing filmography of around 50 titles and um, discovering him on the big screen with restored um, versions of his work and you know on the screening on 35mm as well was beautiful and he's got this stunning melodrama it's really women focused with incredible um, and really complex female characters as well there was a beautiful silent film of his called The Woman Under Oath which um, Pamela Hutchinson introduced uh, which was just amazing to see on the big screen and I'm really excited because there's the first I believe book about his work coming out in a, later this year in October um, so I've already pre-ordered that. Sounds great your holidays sound more intense than my working life <laughs> it's amazing if people aren't as lucky as you and they can't afford to go to Italy how can they engage with the festival here? 
Well, there's a wonderful UK version of um, of the festival that happens in Bologna called Cinema Rediscovered, which takes place in Bristol in late July. So that's a long weekend, most of it happening at the Watershed Cinema in Bristol, which also looks at um, gems that have been forgotten, uh, premiering um, new restorations of beloved work, and even bringing off some of the filmmakers that are still with us to talk about some of their older work. And we have an interview with Cinema Rediscover producer Tara Judah, which is on the BFI's YouTube channel. You can check that out now. Anyway, this episode, we're going to start by hitching our wagon to Westworld, the twisty, tricksy sci-fi series from co-creators Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy. Nolan and Joy visited the BFI South Bank last week and they presented the world premiere of the season two finale. I don't think God rested on the seventh day, but now I think he reveled in his creation. Knowing that someday it would will be destroyed. The hosts are all headed for the same place. What will they find there? What's the end of your story? I don't want to play cowboys and Indians anymore. I want their world. First season, we were looking at the host's agency and how they were trapped in loops of behavior. And second season, there's a sort of paradigm shift where now Quite literally, it's the humans who are being experimented on, the humans who are in their own little fishbowl, being observed and studied, only to find that they too can be reduced to some rather elementary building blocks. And when you start to think about the drives that humans have and the amount of complexity in their lives, I think sometimes you know, we find that we, we are maybe simpler in some ways than we thought. could hardly let you take those first teetering steps in the real world, Bernard. We refined you here, tested you, many years. As far as we can tell, free will is an illusion. If you image someone's mind and put them in an experimental testing chamber and ask them to do something simple like, you know, um, press a button on the left or the button on the right when you're cued by an image, what they found, and this has been repeated and has been part of the experimental record for 30 years, what they found is that uh, about a millisecond or, or, or so before you make the conscious choice to press the button on the left or the right, something else in your mind makes that decision for you. I always picture, we laughed about it in the room, if you remember the beginning of The Simpsons, where it's, uh, it's Maggie has the little fake steering wheel. <laughs> That's consciousness, right? Marge is at the wheel. We don't get to talk to her. Uh, we're Maggie, looking out the window and imagining we're making decisions. And, and most of the experimental evidence seems to suggest that we're not. At its core, this season for me is defined by different love stories. You know, Maeve's love for her daughter, which propels her back into the park and this act of self-sacrifice. There's also Akichita's love of his wife, you know, and the things, the lengths that he will go to in this kind of Orpheus and Eurydice tale. Um, and then there's this interesting relationship, too, between Dolores and Teddy, right, where they finally have free will, the chance to define themselves. But to survive, to lead this army, she has to become a bit of a different person. And I think, you know, anybody who's in long-term relationships, they're defined a little bit by not just, you know, a snapshot of love that endures and endures. We're always changing and growing, and some of those changes can be challenging. Um, and so it's about this couple and, and the ways in which they're growing together and changing and whether they can kind of hold on to this 
this bond that they have. We're the first creatures in this world to make a real choice. The people they made us. Sometimes it feels like it was all a dream. We were so in love. We still are. Are we? Now, briefly, before we go any further, a warning that we're going to talk about the show in full, assuming that you know your Delos from your Dolores and that you've watched the finale. And if not, spoilers lie ahead. Anna, can you tell us a little bit about the event? Because I went down, I didn't see the whole thing, but when I went down, they were building a giant Westworld-style entrance desk set. Did you not stay for the actual screening? I didn't see the thing. I'd love to. What is to. wrong with you? I know. Um, so I deny that was myself amazing. All these great uh, it was an event. It was the world premiere of the Series 2 finale. It was feature film length size, so it was about 19 minutes absolutely spectacular to see it on the big screen i'm a huge westworld fan and nerd as you can probably tell um and that was me it was an amazing coup um by one of my colleagues uh, marcus prince who programs at television events sorry i have to plug my colleagues (laughs) um but it was stunning because they build a sort of a a westworld like entrance in the foyer so uh, guests of the event could go in there was a little exhibition of sort of westy type guns and hats and things like that. So was the idea that you were supposed to feel like you were a guest to the park going into the BFI? Yes, right. exactly. And then when you actually sat down in your seats in NFT1, there was crisps and water um, that were themed, like they were branded as if they were coming from Sweetwater, which is one of the towns yeah. um, that's, um, that Westworld is based in. And I heard that, that we oh. had our own uh, host there. Is that right? So also... Uh, during the whole event, before and after the screening, there was a real-life um, robot that could you can interact with. So anybody could sidle up to him and start talking, and he would respond back. And it was particularly funny because he could had a lot of trouble with my surname. They didn't really <laughs> know too. what to do with that. Um, and then there was a, there was a lovely drinks reception, and everybody was kind of you know dressed in Westy garb, and there was a piano player who was doing piano versions of songs that play in season two and the experience itself was it's always a privilege to be able to watch television on the big screen particularly television that's made like this that's so luscious and grand um and expansive and this episode in particular i would say even that westworld each season we should talk about it like it's a film it's a 10-hour film and that's what it feels like it was the culmination of seeing a feature film that you've been engaged with for months and months and months I wish I'd been there. I was really interested in the idea of watching a show like Westworld in a big crowd as well, because it's it's been called so-called puzzle TV, i.e. there's so many different bits that you can pick out of it and tiny clues and audible clues and all that stuff. And the idea of watching something like that that people have dissected so thoroughly and particularly watching a finale in a big crowd of people like that. How did that alter how you were picking up on different pieces that were coming That's through? That's one of my favourite things as well, because with Westworld in particular, it's one of those shows that becomes a conversation. Yeah. It becomes a cultural conversation online. So the day after it airs, or the day you know, after you watch it here in the UK, um, you just go into a rabbit hole on the internet. You, 
you know, you listen to all the podcasts, look at all the video essays, all the YouTubers who are trying to, de- you know, deconstruct and understand every single episode, link it back to the previous season, to everything else that's going on. So, for instance, with the finale, which happened about a week before the episode actually aired in the States, it was this incredible void where it was just you and the people yeah. you had shared the experience with. And a week later, so now, um, just yesterday, I was diving into all of the thing pieces in the podcast and the video essays that are online Mm. Um, but it's kind of come with a bit of a delay for me but as you say the experience of watching a show that people and that you yourself as an audience member constantly engage with and constantly commenting and analyzing watching on the big screen and getting to share that experience with people around you as well is quite unique because as a tv show you don't really you'll watch it with your family or your friends or your partner or whoever but you don't really get that kind of shared experience of a cinema the community Yeah. yeah yeah well let's dive into the episode a little bit because I watched this at five in the morning. My kids hadn't woken up, which was a really rare thing. At five in the morning, I sat there on my own and watched this episode front to back and found myself by the end increasingly confused and angry about what was going on. And I do enjoy Westworld. I have this weird thing where I'm both interested and infuriated by it at the same time, that I love the ambition. I think it's shot beautifully. I think the actors are incredible. But to me, there seems to be a fundamental lack of character and heart in the centre of it. And it feels like it's often about the, the science and the spectacle of what we're looking at and the big ideas, but they forget to give you characters that you can care about. And you're squinting at me like I'm talking utter nonsense yeah so <laughs> what have i got wrong am i watching I it wrong no i don't think i don't think there's any wrong way of watching anything um i think people always respond or not to different you know products uh different shows to different movies i completely disagree though i think there are one of the things that i love so much about the show are the characters the fact that actually there's not too many of them which is one of the mm-hmm. things that you know i think we all learn from lost is that sometimes we don't need 15 characters and we don't have enough brain and heart capacity to care about all of them. We need an Um, upgrade. (laughs) And I think every season, so the first season and this season um, that's just finished, they center in a particular character a bit more. So Mm. obviously the first season was very much William's story. Um, Obviously spoilers, but William becomes the man in black. So in a way, the two main protagonists of that series were revealed to be one and the same. And this one, I think, is very much Dolores's and Maeve's story. Obviously, Anthony Hopkins' character, Ford, um, died at the end of series one. He does come back a little bit, but the main arc belongs to Maeve and Dolores. So I was fascinated by that. And and they are the anchors of the series as well. They're the heart and soul of it. And I will say as well that um, Bernard's character as well also, he was one of the main anchors in series one, but in this one we get to dive a little bit deeper into what it means to be Mm. him. And he's a particularly interesting character. We thought at first that he was a human. He turns out to be a host. And then he turns out to be a very particular type of host as well, which is one of the big reveals in the finale, that he was actually built by Dolores, who herself is a host. Tell me if I'm learning out too much. so confusing. (laughs) This is why, this is the issue I have, because they are being so intellectual about it Mm. and they're being so clever and they have all of these little pieces of the tumblers that they're folding into place. I often feel that the pure enjoyment of it, for me at least, gets a little bit lost because when you get to the point where it's everybody could be a host, everybody could be human, even if a host dies, they have a backup file so you can put their 
little uh, brain globe into mm-hmm. somebody else's body. All of this stuff that's unveiled, it, it becomes weirdly like a Marvel film for me. In it that if you Is can that always, there's no stakes. Yeah, there's no stakes. There's no jeopardy. So if you can always be replaced, what's the point in having those characters at all? Or why should I care about whether they die or not? I mean, I Teddy, I felt that. a little bit sad about because he's off in robo heaven waving from the sunny climbs <laughs> of whatever they called it the forge is it but um yeah there's there's something about that that's quite annoying the to valley me beyond that, yeah the valley beyond exactly there's something about that that's quite annoying that you, w- there's no definite end to any of these characters but it is that's quite a new element to the story yeah. isn't it like we didn't really know that they were being backed up that's true um and we didn't really know that they could be resurrected so for instance when um you know when dolores gets murdered at in the finale I'm, I was dead right with her. Yeah. And then when we find out that something else has happened to her, that's like a that's a massive twist. Yeah. They haven't really done that with anyone else. Like for instance, the easiest one they could have brought back and you know backed up, as you say, would have been Ford. And they haven't done that. That's true. Yeah. So I don't Anthony think they're Hopkins really going. <laughs> <laughs> he is worth every single I'm penny. Sure he is. Yeah. yeah. Um, a single shot of his face <laughs> is like an acting lesson. Um, no, I don't think they're really going down that road. Yeah. I think that's always been a possibility with the type of story that they're trying to tell. But they haven't really abused that privilege too yeah. much, I don't think. I think they're making really, really smart and really choice, um, kind of really specific decisions um, with who they keep and and kind of how they're using those characters as well. And that's really dictated by the character's journey. Perhaps I'm wanting it to be something it isn't as well in that I'm... What big, do you want it to be? Well, I'm a huge fan of the the film, the Michael mm-hmm. Crichton film that was released in 83, I think it was. was I think it was the 70s. 73, yeah. But that's got a kind of campy element to it. and But people often overplay that. It's actually quite a dark, scary film as well. But it definitely has a kind of 70s gloss to it, a cartoonish element to it, which I really responded to. And I think I saw that film when I was like 10, maybe. So there was something about the, the violence, the robots, and frankly, the bonking in it that I was like, I, I can really find this fascinating on so many different levels that and it's literally a, westworld the series yeah but it's such a but it's such a simple story as mm-hmm. well and then once you start getting into the meta story of do we have free will uh, what does it mean to be human all of this extra stuff but those maybe i'm just haven't themes. got the intellectual capacity for it but i get tired of it i think maybe you're just a host maybe you maybe. haven't awoken i'm yet. stuck in my loop <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, if you want to watch the full Westworld chat with Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy, you can see that on the BFI's YouTube channel. Next, we're shifting from one fantastic wonderland to another, albeit closer to home and with fewer, perhaps no, killer robots. Arcadia, an exploration of Brit's relationship with the land, features footage from 100 years of British history, dug out of the BFI archive by director Paul Wright. A mesmerising, often pretty creepy watch. It reveals how we've seen our country and how we see ourselves. I spoke to Paul this week and asked him what watching all that archive taught him about Britain today. I've seen a lot of uh, horse-drawn carriages and uh, <laughs> combine harvesters. It was actually uh, a really good experience for me. It was it was a case of watching pretty much everything in the rural archive anyway in real time and just kind of marking out anything that you know could be uh, relevant to the film we were trying to make. And sometimes it's hidden within uh, the film itself. You know, it might be something that seems slightly... Uh, off topic but then in it there's one image or one moment that could be something really good in the film. Do you feel like you learn anything about uh, Britain or the British national character by watching that much footage about Britain? Like, Is there something about what we choose to capture that says something about who we are as a people? Well that's a good question. I, uh, 
I think so. I, th- I think to be totally honest, I was really into the, I guess what you'd call uh, more of the outsiders, the strange uh, parts of Britain. Through the archive, it was, it was just great to see that. You know, the film starts with a kind of quite conventional, almost cliched look at the countryside in the first ten minutes, and then it was about kind of subverting that and. Uh, breaking it off into uh, different directions, different versions, you know, different truths of the countryside. This is the Britain we have all inherited. A land of incomparable beauty. folk rituals or these uh, eccentric, brutal uh, celebrations that up until then I, I knew little about, you know, that was really, for me, really interesting to see the light, yeah. There's that line that one of the clips has a narration of that says, there's nowhere else like it on earth, and the first time you use it, it's very much in that almost kind of cheesy, romantic, nostalgic sense of this is Britain and this is our Jerusalem. And then the next time you hear it, there is no one else like it on earth. It feels alien and strange because of the folklore you've started to wind into. You, you must have seen Britain as quite a strange place at times watching all this footage. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it was what was key to the film was that contrast, you know. Uh, I think it, especially in today's current climate, I think it would have been very dangerous to just present you know, 90 minutes of uh, this kind of perfect countryside. So uh, we knew right at the start that wasn't something we wanted to do. There's a line that says something like, this is the Britain we have all inherited, which, you know, could be a slogan from the Brexit (laughs) campaign before the election, if you think about it that way. I was wondering if there's any pressure about showing your view of what Britain is politically today through an archive film. Pressure. Funnily enough, when we started making the film Brexit, uh, the, I don't think the vote had been yet, so it's, it was interesting just through the process that it became uh, it became a thing. But I think I, like we're looking more closely now at what it means to be British, what uh, like that identity. It wasn't about me putting my stamp politically on everything, but something that you know was impossible to ignore. I think was the inequality. That's, that's been throughout the, whatever it is, 100 years of footage we use, that's something that's been there. And also this kind of slow move away from a kind of collective uh, into the individual almost. And that was something that hopefully comes through in the film. For a thousand years, these valleys have had a secret which no one else has shared. With all the footage, a lot of it was already loaded with meaning and with its own politics almost. So it became about um, taking these moments from it and then and showing a lot of them in different contexts to what they were originally made. We had to just kind of shake that off almost because it would have been crippling obviously to, to try and kind of edit a film with, you know, looking at it under that kind of uh, way. So. It was almost as trying to create it as an emotional journey rather than an intellectual journey, if that makes sense. So it was uh, images and sound, and it, it's this idea that it kind of becomes like a, a very visceral experience, hopefully, for the viewer. That was part of it, to kind of present these things as a starting place to hopefully a wider conversation. What is this land?
Arcadia, funded by the BFI, is on UK release now, and you can see a selection of the films that inspired Paul online on the BFI's video-on-demand service, The BFI. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Finally, we're going to talk about Pincushion. Anna's still with us. Anna, can you tell us what Pincushion is? Pincushion is the debut feature of writer-director Deborah Haywood. Um, and it's also supported by the BFI. It has done the festival rounds quite a lot. It premiered at Toronto. It's been in Rotterdam, in Venice Film Festival last year, which is where I saw it about a year ago. And it is just a very, very personal, intimate story of a mother and a daughter and also on a bigger picture, I think it's a really interesting and uncommon and very sensitive portrayal of bullying. Mm. And bullying not just of teenagers, which is a story we're accustomed to see, you know, um, particularly with uh, 30 Reasons Why, which was such a huge kind of cultural moment last year. Um, it's very it's very much in vogue now to talk about bullying, what it means for teenagers, what it means for teen girls in particular. But one of the things that I love so much about Pincushion is that it shows through Joanna. Scanlon's character, um, Lynn, is that it doesn't go away and it kind of shows the really harsh realities and the legacy and the scars, emotional scars that something, experiences like that can leave on a person and how helpless she can be, her character that is, um, to see the same thing maybe happening to her daughter and be completely unable to help her. Definitely, she's quite a wonky donkey. <laughs> she and that she's terrible. Like, don't no, no, see that. I don't. I don't. I mean that. You're totally right that that there's an element of the film which is very much outcasts not being outcasts by any fault of their own. They're just different people and they're so different from most people in society. I'm using air quotes there with my fingers that 
there's no way that they can truly ever assimilate without being true to themselves. And that's heartbreaking, isn't it? That even without the bullying, even if she had people who were on the surface trying to be friendly and include her in what they were doing, there's an element of she's never going to truly connect to anyone. And, and it's really sad awful. because there's, um, I mean, I know it's a really personal film for Deborah, and it feels like that without kind of diminishing the film in any way. I interviewed her for a piece a couple of weeks ago, and she said this really fascinating thing of like, Iona is the protagonist but actually it's Lynn's story. Mm. It's about the scars of bullying yeah. rather than the act of bullying itself. And it's so interesting how you say that because um, she tries to fit in so hard and there's a lot of people who are very superficially open and there's this really brutal scene where she goes to a support group that's all about making friends yeah. um, and is completely rejected by it because there's this kind of uh, innate almost unnatural rejection of her but through no fault of her own just because she stands out she's kind of this very over-the-top character and that freaks people out people you know in this film in particular are shown to just want to flatten anyone who is different in any way so they create kind of this you know image of them or kind of this, this hate for them in themselves and then are kind of forced to act on it even though they don't really know why they just know they need to eliminate them in some way and it's heartbreaking to watch because it's very much her story and you're with her and with Iona throughout the whole film and you can just see how that affects them and also the little microaggressions that they go through that are not big bombastic scenes where they're you know people are throwing things at them or they're getting abused on the street or shouted out it's small aggressions like just being ignored like being rejected by places that um are inviting you in supposedly being asked for a favor and then just being belittled by it there's a running thing in the film where lynn gives her neighbor a ladder and then needs it back and she keeps going around and asking for it and she keeps getting rejected by the neighbors so she cannot get her own property back from her mm. and it's those tiny tiny little things that the film that are peppered throughout the film that just make it so captivating yeah. and kind of really heartbreaking to watch definitely and it's got this weird double decker tragedy to it as well in that Iona is naturally as a teenager trying to break free of her mum but she can only do that by being false, essentially, to the world that they've built together. And that just it makes me cry when I talk talking about it. It's, it's awful that she understandably wants to have friends and assimilate into a culture that is much more normal, quote unquote normal, than her mum can be. But to do that, she has to reject her mum and everything that she stands for, which is, yeah, which is it's just kind terrible. Of, it's kind of interesting that this film is coming out at the same year that Lady Bird came yeah. out, because it's kind of like a darker version of that. It you is, know, yeah. you see this incredibly close mother-daughter relationship and how it starts to break precisely, like you say, because Iona sees that she needs to fit in with the girls at school. Mm. So she starts to emulate them and she starts to behave in the way that they behave, even though what that means is that she's breaking the bond with her mother and she doesn't even realize the importance of that or how hurtful that can be to Lynn and at the same time and the real tragedy of the story is that um as they both suffer at the hands of others and they can't really quite fit in because that bond breaks they can't really help each other either mm. which is the truly sad part about, for me about the film we're talking like it's a kind of 
gritty kitchen sink drama. But in terms of the, how it looks and the atmosphere and the tone of the film, it's, it walks this very strange line as well. It's got these kind of phantasmagoric fantasy sequences that Iona has. That she's kind it's of pretending it's supernatural. like a fairy tale, um, The director has really always described it as a dark fairy tale, yeah. which I think is the absolute perfect way to describe it. Um, you know, both Lynn and Iona in the film have these really vivid fantasy lives and they kind of create a fantasy world for themselves as well to live in, to protect themselves from everyone else. Um, so it feels incredibly, you know, beautiful and pastel chic. It looks incredible. Um, I read a, re- a review somewhere that described it as a cat lady chic film, <laughs> which seems perfect. So I'm not allowed to say wonky donkey, but they can call her a cat lady. <laughs> cat lady fair. is not a bad thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm representing for cat ladies everywhere. So Deborah and some people from the cast as well are going to be down at BFS Health Bank today, I think, because this airs on the 5th of July. They're going to be down for a preview of the film, which is then going to be released on Nationwide on the 13th of July. Yeah, let's get our plugs in. We'll be filming that event. You can watch that on our YouTube channel. <laughs> and Pincushion is out on general release in the UK from the 13th of July. That's it for this episode. As ever, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. I'm at Henry H. Barnes and Anna, you are... Anna B. Demented. The PFI podcast is hosted by us, Henry Barnes and Anna Pogutskaya, published by Acast and produced by Peter Sale. More of Pete's work at petersale.co.uk. Find our archive and like, rate, review, subscribe, etc, etc at Apple Podcasts and all other decent pod providers. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, your last line this week comes from the good people at Delos Corp. Nothing can possibly go wrong. Go wrong. Go wrong. Go 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 go.